0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, team. Do me a favor and trap down a Bible if you can and get with me to Exodus chapter 19. We're doing a series right now, uh, going through this uh, Jesus storybook Bible. And um, some of you have pointed out that I am getting slow. Uh, If you're reading along with the rest of the church and you're following the four readings a week, I'm getting left in the dust. Uh, and I know that and I'm doing it on purpose. Here's one of the things that I love about this book. Uh, my, my kids and I, we, Ash and I, we read this, this to the kids and um, somebody was saying, have you read this before? And we've burned through actually a couple copies of this because we would, you know, do this on such a regular basis. But the thing that I love about this is it really shows you how each of the individual stories has some connectedness to the person and work of Christ. The subtitle of the book is How Every Story Whispers His Name. So you read a story about Isaac and you learn about how there's a better sacrifice coming that the Lord was going to send his son. And you read about Daniel in the lion's den and you learn something about the person and work of Christ. And so you have each of these stories and then there's a really uh, beautiful way that Sally Lloyd-Jones connects it to the gospel. She connects it to Christ. And, and so I love this book and I'm glad that we're doing this thing together. Uh, what I'm trying to do on Sunday mornings is show you not only that we have all of these different isolated in, you know, stories throughout the Bible that point to Christ, the entire Bible itself is designed to lead us to Christ. And so I'm trying to show you these significant moves uh, within the storyline of scripture itself uh, that that tie into the book here and some of the stories you're reading along the way. But I'm also trying to show you that the entire Bible really builds this anticipation for him. And so that's what we're up to. And we're going to land in uh, Exodus chapter 19 this morning. So if you could get there with me, it's on page 59 in the blue Bibles that we have in baskets down by your feet. Uh, The story that I will be referencing shows up in here on pages 100 to 107. Um, While you're getting there and before we we read the passage, let me again just uh, show you where we're at in the development of God's plan of salvation. So I'll, I'll rehearse it to you just so we can keep our mind on how this whole thing fits together and then we'll read Exodus 19 verses 3 to 13. We'll pray and we'll get to work. At the very front end of the Bible, what did we find? We found God making all of creation and especially humanity. He made mankind in his image, male and female. He created them and they were made in his image and it was beautiful. You're meant to feel that when you read that story. They're in a garden and they have this unhindered relationship with their maker. Describes it in this kind of way. They're walking with God in the cool of the day and they're able to have this communion with God, this relationship with God that is beautiful. And then we find very early on in the Bible that humanity turns away from God. That though God has given them words of instruction and how to live and how to relate to him, they begin to reimagine what their experience could be without him. We don't need him to tell us what we should or shouldn't do. And they reject God in a sense and they take and eat of something that God has forbidden them to eat from. And right away we recognize that relationship with God is no longer the way it used to be that they no longer have this unhindered fellowship with God. Now they're hiding from him and they're blaming each other. So their vertical relationship is broken and their horizontal relationship is broken. And God speaks over them. And he says, as as a result of what you have done here, there is a curse and everything is affected by it. And, and he, and they have to leave the garden. They have to exit the garden because they can no longer be in the presence of of a holy God. I think Indiana Jones, if you've seen, you know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark and they look into the ark with the items that, that reveal God's holiness and their faces melt off, I think they got it right. That we, can, we can't come into the experience of a holy God as sinful people and be okay. And so he tells us we have to leave the garden and he puts, you know, flaming swords there so we can never re-enter it. And so the Bible right away is saying, how, here's the big issue then if sin is the problem, how could we ever be restored into a right relationship with our maker? And it doesn't get better right away. It gets worse. Cain and Abel, we talked about them and we realized they had, that sin issue became a profound reality in their experience. That, that Cain looked at his brother and he hated him and he envied him and he was jealous of him and he struck him down and he killed him. And then it just gets worse. You read chapter Uh, 5, and you begin to see this is the human experience, that because we have rejected the life-giving source, it tells it like this. Humanity was multiplying, but each individual, so so so-and-so had so-and-so, they lived this many years, and then they died. And that's the the recurring refrain in chapter 5. There's death now. Death at that personal level as brothers are killing each other. Death at that global level as every person is no longer connected with God in the way that they were designed. So how do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to a relationship with God? And again, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. There's a flood. It looks like humanity is going to be rebooted. And you might think, okay, God poured out his judgment. It's all going to be better now that we try again. But what do we find? Sin persists. And, you know, Noah struggles with sin and his offspring struggle with sin. And then we get to chapter 11. And again, all of humanity is saying, we don't want God. We're going to build our own way to heaven. We're going to find our own way to get to the places where we need to be. There's a disregard for God. And so the question just kind of lingers. The Bible is saying, how do we get back? How do we get right? There's something broken in us and it's, it's individual and it's global. And we need to figure out a solution to this problem that we have. And we found Abraham. God was calling somebody and we realized God, his plan is, you know, it's game on. He's going to say, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to shower down my affection on you. So you're going to be this vehicle of blessing so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you. We get this echo of the gospel message. We kind of get this sense of the fact that God is going to use a person and a people to bring about his salvation. It doesn't happen right away though. He, he doesn't have a child yet. And there's a long period of waiting before he even has a child. But then finally he begins to have, he has a child and then that child has other children We begin to see that God is calling a people to be the instrument of his saving promises. And so there's a people now, and and, uh, we looked one week at how God is superintending their experience, that he's providentially at work. We looked at Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery, but behind all of that was a God who was working salvation, who was using what was intended for evil to accomplish good, the saving Of many lives, Then we have a people, but we we find them in Egypt and they were slaves. And so we begin to to wonder, when on earth is this story going to take its turn to bring us back home to God? Now we've got a people and God has called them and he's providentially, you know, walking beside them, but now they're in Egypt. And then we looked at this event where they're brought out of Egypt, where they become a redeemed nation. And that was last week as we looked at the fact that God was saying, I'm going to rescue my people. And here's how it's going to work. You guys are going to take a a sacrifice and you're going to take the blood of that sacrifice and put it on the doorframe of your house. And then uh, when judgment comes, you will be spared and you will be brought out. You will exit. There will be this exodus from Egypt and I will be your savior. I will be your God and you will be my people. And now we have established this nation. So now again, the promises keep moving forward and we're thinking, okay, here we have this people that God is gonna make the promises come true through them. What happens next? And they go out into the desert wilderness and they're being led around there and we pick them up as they're camped out at the base of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And God is about to speak to them to help them understand what he has done and what he is doing. But the entire story is positioning us to have this anticipation. How do the promises come true? How does this work? How does God bring about his salvation? Is this the moment now that he's going to speak to his people and give them these incredible words? Is this the moment where the promises come true? Well, not quite yet. So let's look at Exodus 19, starting in verse three, we'll go to 13 and it reads like this. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. And what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows, not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they approach the mountain." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help us to encounter you in these moments. As we open the word together, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to each of our hearts, that you would help us to know you better, that you would help us to know what you are doing, how you brought about salvation and why that's so significant for us today. God, I I thank you for the words of instruction that you give to Moses and to the people here. And they continue to have relevance and importance for us today. So help us to feel through what that looks like for us today. Help us to hear your voice right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to find here two different things. And you see it in the divisions of the text. We, we see here, first off, who we're becoming. And then we see, secondly, who we're dealing with. Who we're becoming shows up in verses 3 to 8. God is speaking to a people And he's telling them, you know, what what he has done to this point and the implications of what that will entail moving forward. It's it's, it's a, a very beautiful reality. He's telling us that we are a people that have a story. We're a people that have a story. Look at verse three. Moses went to God and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. It's a people who already have a history. And he's saying, remember Jacob? Remember his household that, you know, he was this, you know, guy who God had given the promises to and he's, he's calling them to remember their identity. That they, have a, that they have a story, that they have a narrative. That they were a small group of individuals who now have become this large nation of people, this people of Israel. But they're this house of Jacob who turned into a people of Israel and they are the people of the promise that God has been using them all along to communicate himself to the world. And so we need to recognize that we are a people with a story. Now we can look back. Some of us can look back on our personal narratives and we can see how God has been at work in our individual lives. And we can say, okay, when I was, you know, going through this season, here's what I perceive God was up to. And we can recognize that we have a story, but our story goes even much further back. It goes all the way back to the beginning when we start to consider how God has created humanity and how he has been faithful at every point along the way, that becomes for us our story as well. And that's how the New Testament tells us to read the Bible. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it tells us that when we look at the events with the Israelites, those were written for us. Those are examples for us. This is a part of the fabric of the human experience. So we look back at the Old Testament and we're invited to go there to see how God deals with us today. Not only that, in Romans chapter 15, verse four, it puts it exactly like this. It says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Written to a church saying, everything that happened in the Old Testament was written down for us. When we look at the Bible in the Old Testament, when we look at the story of the Israelites, I want you to feel that it's your story, that God has given us this gift, of a narrative of how He has dealt with a people from the very beginning, and it, it becomes for us then, a story of His saving purposes. And we can see him as faithful along the way, and we can see our own failures reflected in the tendencies of the Israelites, but it's our story. We're a people with a story. We're a people who've been saved by grace. We're a people who are rescued based off of what God has done. Look at verse four. It says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God is saying, think about how you experience salvation. And he uses some you know, incredible imagery. It's the imagery of a eagle with this you know, young offspring. And if you've seen a little baby bird, they look very awkward and helpless. And it's saying that the people of God are like this baby bird that God has carried on his wings to himself. That God has done something that is so beautiful for them that he has redeemed them out of, out of Egypt. And, and so, so think about this, fam. Think about how were they saved? Was it because they were so incredible? Was it because they were so strong and mighty? Was it a military campaign that got them rescued? I mean, what did they have to do to experience salvation? The answer is very little, right? They had to appropriately apply the blood of the lamb. They had to participate in what God was saying to them of how they could be rescued and redeemed. Then they get brought out out of Egypt. And do you remember what God did for them? He said, go talk to your neighbors before you go. Ask them for, you know, help. And God made the neighbors, the Egyptians, favorably disposed. So not only were they rescued, they also were resourced. They had all kinds of gear then when they were leaving Egypt. God had given them the plunder of the Egyptians. They go out from there and they get pinned up against the sea. Do you guys remember that? And they're standing there going, oh, great. The the king has changed his mind. The army's coming to destroy us. What are we supposed to do? Moses, did you just bring us out here because there aren't enough graves back in Egypt? And God speaks and he says, watch. He doesn't say, strap on your swords, guys. Fight for your families. He says, watch the salvation of the Lord. And he parts the sea and they walk across on dry ground. And then when the armies come in after them, the, the you know, waters go back over them and, and they perish. So the salvation of the Lord, if you're thinking through, what did the people of God have to do to experience salvation? Very little. They had to believe in what God had told them to do. That's it. That's salvation by grace. That means that God is able to redeem and rescue a people if we will embrace what, he is, what he's doing. That's how it works. We become a people who recognize that God does the rescuing. We don't walk around and go, you know what? I'm on God's team because I'm so valuable that he wanted to draft me. And he got me, and so here we go. No, we say, all of us should be able to say, I, the boast that I have is Jesus Christ. No other boast. It's not, you know, oh, I try to be a good dude. I try to read my Bible. I try to go to church. I try to lead. You know, I'm a pastor. That's, you know, all these accolades that I could bring forward and say, here's why I'm a saved individual. No, no, no. We are a people who are saved by grace. That God is a rescuing God who looks at us in our desperate condition, and he says, I'll do all the work for you. I will save you. I will rescue. I will redeem you. We are a people who are saved by grace. We are a people who then respond to God with obedience of faith. Look at verse five. It says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my commands, keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. It's saying, here's what you are to do now as a redeemed people, as a saved people, listen to my voice. But this is very important. There's a chronology of grace here. If you're thinking about what is the order of how this stuff plays out, it's very important that you see that salvation comes first before obedience. There's a chronology of grace here. He's saying, look at what I've done in Egypt. I carried you out like an eagle carrying you on on wings to myself. Now, obey me. And there will be be blessings that are tied to that. But we obey not as a way to earn our relationship with God. We obey as a response to the salvation we possess. Christians are people, the people of God are a people who have been redeemed already. And now God is giving us a, a charter document for what it looks like to live in the presence of a holy God. We have a savior. Now, how do we live in harmony with him? That's what the the words of instruction are. And so as Moses comes to the mountain and spends almost an entire year where God is giving him the 10 commandments and he's giving him all of the instructions for how to build a tabernacle where the people can encounter the glory of God when he's onboarding this system for sacrifices and priestly responsibilities and all this different stuff when when he's going through all these case studies of how to apply the law of God in all these different situations All of that is coming after the reality that they're already a redeemed people. And so their relationship to God isn't one of, we're going to do all of this so that we can earn our position with God. God is, he's already done that. He saved them. Now they're going to have to figure out what does it look like to live as a saved people. And that's how the Bible works. And we often get it wrong. We often put our obedience ahead of our salvation. Alec Motier, he's an Old Testament professor, um, And he wrote a commentary on Exodus, and this is what he says here. He's pointing out the sequence, and he says, here's how it works. You need to pay attention. The sequence is the saving acts of God. He already rescued them, and then it's our response of obedience. He saves us, then we say, okay, game on. What do you you want us to do? My life is yours. I'm a redeemed individual. Anything you want, I'll do it. But we obey by faith. And then finally, the blessings which obedience brings. He puts it like this. Motier says, nothing must ever be allowed to upset that order. That's the order that it works. And and so here's the question that we're dealing with then. How does the Bible work for us? What is the point of this book for, for saved people? Is this a salvation document that tells us, you know, the commands and the instructions and we say, you know what, I better try really hard to do what God wants me to do here so that I could have a relationship with God. Is it a salvation document where we're told, you know, do all these different steps, paint by the, by the numbers, you know, do, you need to be this kind of person and then you can be right with God or is it a, a discipleship document that tells us that having been saved by grace through faith in Christ, this is now how we live in harmony with God. He gives us words of instruction. The Ten Commandments, they they have that same chronology of grace. Ten Commandments mess people up because they look at it and they go, I could never do that. And we expect that's what God needs us to do, to be right with him. But what is the preamble to the Ten Commandments? It's the same thing. It's the very next chapter. Same chronology of grace. What does he say? I am the Lord your God who rescued you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then he begins to offload Ten Commandments. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. What is he setting us up to understand? We relate to God by that gracious salvation that he's done for us. Having been saved, now we want to know what does it look like to live in harmony with our Savior? This is a very, very important thing. So uh, if you consider your obedience, the thing that establishes your relationship with God, it's very different than what the Bible is suggesting. Your obedience is not something that establishes your relationship with God. It's evidence that you have one. It's the evidence, it's the fruit of being redeemed by God and understanding that. Now, I want just for a minute, I'll take a minute here. There's a danger here if we change the order. And the danger is what is often called legalism. Legalism is when you look at the expectations that God gives to us, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the requirements, and you make that something more than it's intended to be. You make that the way that you relate to God. Here's what you do you actually produce a works righteousness. You start to relate to God based off of what you've done. I I am okay with God because because I'm trying really hard, because I'm a good person. And if you look at my life, you can see I'm better than most people. And you produce this works righteousness. It's a self-righteousness. It's something that you, you know, drummed up, you perform it, and it actually makes you an intolerable person. There, there are some dangers to legalism and it, and it shows up in a bunch of different ways. It, it makes people very critical. If your relationship with God is based off of all the stuff that you've done, you look down on other people who aren't trying as hard as you. It's, um, it makes you critical. It makes you mean. Think about the parable that Jesus gave of the prodigal son. One son goes off and he squanders all of his possessions and and he gets to the end of himself and he goes, what am I doing with my life? I need to go home. I need to beg for forgiveness. I need to ask if I could just be a hired hand. I've, I've really screwed up here. And he comes home and the father sees him and he throws a party. But there's an older brother in the story. And what is he doing? His chores. He's a good boy. And when he sees this far off son coming home and then being gladly received, how does he respond to that? I'm not okay with this. How dare you? This son of yours, dad, that went away and squandered all of these resources, you're just going to receive him? You're just going to welcome him back in? Look at me. I've been doing everything you want me to do all along, and you've not even given me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. That's the language of legalism. That's saying my relationship with God is based off of all the stuff that I've done. I've earned something here. Why won't you give me what I've earned? but it makes you incredibly mean. We need to be careful here. The Bible is telling us, even when the law is being given, there's a chronology of grace. It's God saving us and we receive that. And now he gives us words of instruction so that we might know how to live with with our savior. All right, so what happens when we embrace this way of salvation? We get this incredible identity. Look at verses five and six. It says, if you obey me fully. And keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is saying, now that you're a redeemed people and you're going to embrace that identity, think about who you are becoming. This is so incredible. He's saying, if you respond by obedience of faith, then even though God owns it all, the people of God become His treasured possession his he cherishes the people of God it's his we were doing alpha this week and we were going around the circle and um, we were asking if you could get you know if you ended up stuck in an elevator and you had the choice of who you were in there with any person throughout all of history who would you choose who would you choose to be stuck in an elevator with and everyone's kind of going around throwing out some ideas and Matt Santis he goes Tolkien He was like, if I got stuck in an elevator and I got to choose who I was stuck in there with, I would choose that the writer Tolkien. And he's like, I don't even care if I never got off that elevator again, because he just has such an admiration for this author. And so then I was thinking this week and I was like, well, you know what? What if I were able to say to Matt, hey, dude, I've got some connections. This is pretty wild. I've got some connections. I can actually, I'd like to give you a gift called some friends. I actually have Tolkien's writing desk and I want to gift it to you. Now, if that were true, which is not, but if that were true and I were able to say, hey, hey Matt, here's Tolkien's writing desk. Can you imagine maybe some of the most famous works of literature were crafted here? What would, what would Matt do? He would celebrate. He would look at this thing and it's, you know, whatever. I don't know what it would be. Maybe it's just made out of wood. It's just an, an inanimate object. But he would look at that object and he would be like, oh, baby. Oh, baby. This thing is so incredible because of its connection to that significant individual. That's who we are. That's who we are becoming. God is saying, everything's mine. The whole earth is mine. I made everything. But if you will be my people, and if you will live in relationship with me, if you will obey the covenant terms here, then out of everything on the whole entire creation, you're mine. You're my treasured possession. And and that means that we somehow reflect the glory of God to the watching world. That people see us as having the name of God and belonging to him. and, And people have this experience then of encountering God as they encounter us. It really is an incredible privilege, but that's what God is saying. You will be my treasured possession. And it's a treasure. God doesn't just put up with us. He actually likes us. He doesn't just say, you know what? You guys are a mess, but I'm a redeemer. So I'm going to save you. And you know, you just stay away from me because you irritate me. No, he, he loves us. He likes us. We're his treasured possession. We become this, this people then who are a kingdom of priests. And we've talked about this a couple times. It's a recurring theme that I hope you're picking up on. When God calls a people, he's trying to tell them something. I'm going to redeem you, but it's not just about you. It is about you. You get the privileges of that redeemed relationship. But when he calls a people, it's for the sake of others. The, the people of God are a missionary people of God. This is before the priesthood is even explained. And on the front end, God is saying, Here's my intentions for you you will become an entire people. Every member is a priest. Every member has a relationship with God and then mediates that to other people. This is who we are, the missionary people of God. That's who we are as a church. We don't just do church for us. We do church with the, with the intention, with the design that what happens here as we gather actually affects how we scatter and we go out and we do our job and we interact with people. and We have conversations and all of that for the glory of God. Because we believe that God is calling us to be his representatives in the world. And we don't just want to hide in here, but we want to deploy very purposefully to help other people come to know him. We will be this kingdom of priests, this holy nation, an entire people group that is bearing the name of God and representing who he is to a watching world. Guys, I'm not just making this stuff up. This is how the New Testament reads this passage as well. When Peter writes to the churches, he writes a letter and he says, You know, I want this to go to every church. This is general distribution. I finished this, you get it out there. Get it to everybody. And what does he say in 1 Peter chapter 2? Identical language. This is it here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You, talking to the church now, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. It's who we are. Everything that God was saying back then in Exodus chapter 19, that's us, the church. We are this kingdom of priests, this royal nation, this holy priesthood, God's treasured possession so that we might declare his praises to the ends of the earth. It's who we are. And I wonder if you're willing to embrace that, but we are a missionary people of God. All right, the people respond in verses seven and eight. They, they basically say, 10, four, we're on board. Sign us up. We, we want to be your people. We want to glorify you. Seven reads like this. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before, him, before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the, to the Lord. They say, okay, we're on, we're, we're on board with this. We like this game plan. We will listen. We are redeemed. Give us your word. And that's the first thing that we see. We see this incredible identity thing going on, who we are becoming in verses three to eight. But then it turns a corner here and it shows us who we're dealing with in verses nine to 13. Verses nine to 13 help us now to see The God who speaks to us, the God who gives us his word is not a domesticated God. We have his word, but we need to understand who he is. He is a holy God. He is a God who comes in a fire and in a cloud. Look at verse nine. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. And then Moses said, told the Lord what the people had said. It, it's God saying, I'm going to relate to you in a way that you would understand who I am. And you guys, if you track with the story, he leads them in a pillar of fire, in a pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. I mean, you wouldn't want to touch that thing, right? You wouldn't want to come into contact with that fire. Uh, Reese lately has been asking me, it's kind of, she's been talking to me about, um, if there's ever a fire, what do I do, Daddy. And and there's just this, you know, little fear in her of what that would entail. And God relates to his people in a fire, but he also relates to them in this dense cloud. And it is this form that is more approachable. It's still terrifying, but it's more, Is God kind of condescending himself to us and saying, I'm going to be the God who shows myself to be holy, but who is also approachable. And so Moses uh, gets that incredible promise there that God is going to, come in a cloud and speak to him and the people are going to put their trust in him. And he tells them in order to have this interaction, the people need to be prepared. Verse 10 and following. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. He's saying, if you are going to deal with me, There is some preparation. There's some work to be done. If you're going to deal with a holy God, tell the people to start right now, getting themselves ready for that day. That is how we should understand God. He is a holy God. I remember how how transformative it was in my own story to begin to grasp the holiness of God. It changed everything. When you begin to realize God is not just your homeboy, He's not just somebody that you can kind of casually interact with, but he is a holy God. That will change your life. R.C. Sproul and others had helped me to see the beauty of God's holiness and its implications, but here's what God is doing here. He's saying, I'm a holy God, so you better prepare yourself for that moment when I speak to you on the top of the mountain. reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6 where a prophet, a holy man of God, gets the vision of the temple and he sees the glory of God filling the temple, the train of the robe filling the temple. And what does he do? He cries out, woe is me for I have seen the glory of God and I'm not fit for this. I'm not prepared for this. I'm coming undone in this moment. And what does God have to do? An angel takes the tongs and takes a burning coal and touches his lips. And God is saying in that moment, you are experiencing the holiness of God, the glory of God, and and you have to have this experience to even make you fit to do that, or you will come undone. But that's what's happening here, and the people understand it to be that way. It says, don't come near in verses 12 and 13, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death they're to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand shall be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. It's saying there is now this proximity that we need to be aware of. If you're even going to get close to God, you're in trouble. That he's so holy that people can't just go up to God because of his awesomeness. In order to do that, you would have to have specific instructions. And that's what happens in verse 13. It says, only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they approach the mountain. And so Moses goes up and the people are told, be careful here. Prepare yourselves here. Watch what happens, but don't dare approach God without being summoned by him. What is that teaching us? It's teaching us about the holiness of God. It's teaching us about who he is. It's teaching us that we can't just relate to him in this casual way, but God is a holy God who has made a way for us to interact with him. And, and, you know, it's like like on uh, Chronicles of Narnia, where they're asking about Aslan, is he safe? No, good grief. No, he is not safe, but he's good. And that's the God that we're dealing with. He is a holy God. So later on in Hebrews 12, where it's talking about this event and Moses getting the law, and it's making some comparisons between Mount Sinai and God speaking in this you know, thunderous voice and all the implications there and how the people were fearful. They even rejected the notion, we don't want to be a priest. Why don't you talk to God and you just tell us what he says and we'll just do that. I don't know if we can do this thing. We can't be in that relationship with him. They were freaking out. Moses himself, when he thought about it, this comes later in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that he was fearful. that When God was summoning him up the mountaintop, he had this trepidation because he understood I'm dealing with a holy God. He's giving me these words of instruction, this, the words of life, but I am fearful. And then in Hebrews 12, it makes a comparison between that mountain and Mount Zion, Zion, the mountain of God, the mountain of the gospel and it's saying, man, we have this incredible reality that God has spoken to us and he's communicated his holiness and how awesome he is. But through Jesus Christ, he has also made himself accessible. That he is a God who we have access to. He's a God who we can have fellowship with. That's where the story is leading us. How do we get back into relationship with that holy God? How do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to things as they were intended to be? It is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. Moses got the instructions of God and it's all fiery and scary. And it's, you know, we need to do all these different things to maintain our privileged salvation with him, to be able to be the people that he's called us to be. And then Jesus comes along and he is the word of God. And he communicates to us what God is truly like. And he gives us access to God through faith in him. Jesus is the way to relate to God. And the story, it goes on. And it helps us to understand it's not over yet, but God is bringing his people home. And we are that people the missionary people of God who have the words of instruction, who are saved by grace, who communicate what God is like to a watching world. Let's embrace that. Let's pray. Lord, you are holy and awesome and you are our savior. Lord, we pray that every person in here would acknowledge the the grace that they've received if they've placed their faith in Christ. The gift of being carried on eagle's wings to yourself, Lord. That salvation, it, it is awesome. And we will spend all of eternity reveling in that glory. And in the meantime, God, we're grateful that you're a speaking God, that you give us words of instruction so that we might walk by faith in the Son of God, so that we might walk in a way that's in accordance with who you are, your character and your goodness We thank you, God, that you've made us able to approach you through the finished work of Christ. We don't come to a mountain that's scary, that's terrifying, that's loud, but we come to Mount Zion, the place of our salvation. We come to Jesus Christ, who gladly receives us and tells us what you are like. We thank you for him. Amen. Amen.